Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Ben, and I cherish my time, so I never listen to I Doubt It with Dollamore. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dollamore. All right, welcome to episode 333 of your listener-produced, listener-supported I Doubt It with Dollamore. I am your host, Jesse Dollamore, and sitting across from me, the champion of Song Pop the App. Brittany Page. <laughs> so you actually shouldn't say that because uh, this week I did lose to a listener. You lost to a listener? Yeah. How do so, you know they're a listener? Um, I just think that because oh, okay. they, I think they're... They sought you out to play? Yes. Well, yes. But also um, just following me on Twitter and oh, okay. whatever. Okay. Putting things together. All right. I got you. I got you. And, um, so you lost. You're a fucking loser. Uh, <laughs> Well, that's kind of hateful, but um, I wouldn't go that far because I'm pretty good most of the time. <laughs> What's happening is there's certain songs. All right. Let's uh, lay. I want you to slather well, on. We should say what song. Pop no, 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 is. no. What, whatever excuse you're getting ready uh, to slather on the right. bread that is our intro segment. <laughs> right. Go ahead. Okay. Well, first we should say what what the hell song pop is song pop is an app and i'm on song pop 2 there's a second one you're and, just plugging it so you can get more games and so what it is it, it's it's like beat shazam it's you get five songs in a category you're you're explaining what it is by explaining it comparing it to something that a lot of people won't know what that is either that's true but here i go to explain <laughs> it <laughs> there's Five songs per playlist, and you can send different kinds of playlists. 80s collection, 70s collection, fucking Sia if you're a dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry. So you have to guess the title of the song or the artist that sings the song. It, it changes it up. So You this, don't get your choice. They tell you, guess the artist. Yes. And then they play songs, yeah. snippets of songs, and you have to... Quicker than your opponent, right. choose the correct answer. The correct answer. Whether it's the song title or the artist. Okay. And it can get pretty stressful because you can see when they have selected the song and it, it just gets stressful. And what I've been noticing is I am almost, I've almost mastered the 70s collection playlist 
and um, there's been a lot of Eddie Money songs, and I forgot how much I love Eddie Money until I've been playing these rounds, and I've been screwing myself in the game, losing, because I want to continue listening to the Eddie Money song. (laughs) I don't know what's wrong with me. I've heard you play several times, and there have been times, because you're quick, oftentimes... It's less than a second and you answer. You know. Yeah. You know, 0.8 seconds, you know what the song is. Mm-hmm. Before, like, any words, you just hear, like, a horn. Oh, I know what song that is. <laughs> and sometimes I'm like, oh, that's a good song. I, I should remember that song so I, we can play it later. Because yeah. oftentimes we just sit around and cast YouTube uh, songs from YouTube to the TV. Yeah. You know, when I cook dinner or whatever. Uh-huh. And, yeah, that's a... Uh, it's good. Anyway, so I always forget the songs and we never get to listen to them again. Yeah, so now I've been going down this hole of watching Eddie Money YouTube videos. And God damn. I, I the sound exciting I life know, of Brittany I, I Page, sound everybody. like the worst. But I always read comments on the the YouTube and oh what's that like well on music videos Is it anything like Jesse Dollimore's experience no, with YouTube comments no it's so different on music videos um I don't know if it's just normal people that go to watch music videos and then it's abnormal trolls that go and watch everything else on YouTube but everyone comes together and just talks about how much they love the music or love the artist and of ah. course you have people that are like um, I saw a comment today and they said, don't come here and say, I'm 13 and love this song. No one cares. You're not a cool hipster. You know, so there's some times where people are leaving comments. <laughs> they get a little shitty. Yeah, but most of the time it's, oh. But they're not calling them fat faggot gingers or no, cucks no, or no, no, whatever. No. They not, talk- a lot of, not a lot of cuckery no. in the Eddie Money comment section. Yeah, n- no. <laughs> um, they talk about where they first heard the song or what their first memory is attached to the song. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to read those things. So mm. we all know how I love comment sections. <laughs> it is, uh, yeah, remarkable, mm-hmm. your comment section love. I feel like it helps me keep tabs on what everybody's up to. The general feeling of society. Just keeping your <laughs> finger on the pulse. Yeah. Yes. Right. That's what I tell myself. All right. Well, we have a voicemail that I want to play, and it deals with Harvey, a, a listener. Ah, you know what? We'll just play the voicemail. Hey, guys. It's Daria. Um, I'm from Houston, um, Houston, Texas. I moved to New Hampshire about two weeks ago, and I wanted to talk about Hurricane Harvey. Um, I'm safe, obviously. I'm, like, really far away. But everyone I know, including my family, is there. And the professors, I had to move here for school, and the professors are all hearing the news and they're all talking to me about it. I'm that one girl from Houston, and they're all like, are you okay? Is your family okay? And I just want to talk about, like, I just want to, like, conceptualize it, like, how bad it is, like, I'm scrolling through Facebook, and every, like, I have all these friends from Facebook, like, almost every one of my friends list is from Houston, and post after post after post, it's these huge pictures of, like, mailboxes being completely surrounded with water, like, I'm not even kidding, there is a, um, 
highway that's completely underwater, like the actual post, like where you exit, is like submerged underwater. My friends are posting stuff asking for help, like they're asking to see if there's an airlift nearby or a shelter nearby. I have a friend who's staying at a shelter right now um, because he literally was living on the second floor of his house for like a few days because the entire first floor was flooded. Um, I have people talking about like how they just got evacuated. I have people talking about like their power not being there, about how their family member is sick and they can't leave the house. Like this is post after post after post after post and it's really hard to see my friends go through this and I really hate being so, so far away right now. Like it's so not okay. And it's just, it's especially hard because I know these, like, streets. Like, I used to live there. I know all these roads. I used to drive there, like, every day. And they're completely underwater. And that is so hard for me to just take in, you know? Like, imagine, like, a street you go down every day being underneath, like, fucking 12 feet of water. And it's just awful and I don't know like god I'm really 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 fucking praying that it gets better because I'm so worried about my parents I'm so worried because they live kind of close-ish to a water place to like a body of water and like they're fine now but like the areas around them have evacuated and there's so much traffic and just like the roads are terrible people are losing their lives um I just, I hope everyone is safe down there and please do what you can to help these people out. It really, it really brings into perspective how little control we have when Mother Nature goes crazy. And this is one of those times. And this, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you see and you would expect to happen somewhere else. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, there's flooding internationally right now that is tragic. And the benefit that we have here in the United States when something like this happens is we we do have the government set up in place relative to disaster relief. Now, clearly in this case, it's not just the government that's getting shit done. In fact, in more, in more ways than not, it's your average everyday Americans who are helping one another. People coming from hours away with their boats to help rescue. Thousands of people are being rescued. Look, we feel for you, Daria. um, We're glad you're safe. We have a lot of listeners in the Houston area, and I've I've reached out to a a couple, and some have reached out to me to let us know that they're okay. Um, It is... It is a tragedy. I mean, it is. um, Mother Nature is a cruel, uncaring. Here's the other thing. How many of these kind of incidences can we have weather related that are, you know, a storm, a 500 year type of storm and say, oh, and that was just it was due. It's not climate change. It's not what everyone has been predicting for decades that as the temperature rises globally, we're going to start having insane flooding in coastal areas. 
we're going to start seeing storms the likes of which we've never seen. But we still have morons who, for political reasons, won't admit to the consensus of science that this is happening. Well, they're, they're witnessing it with their own fucking eyes, and it's something else. Yeah, Bangladesh is right. almost a third of Bangladesh is underwater right now. And South Asia is experiencing a very strong monsoon season, and many people are dead. Many communities have been ruined. Yeah. So it isn't just Houston. I mean, the, this is happening in other places as well. And it is scary to watch these images coming out and seeing people. I mean, you have no control in this situation. For sure. Water is just ruining your car, ruining your home, killing people. I mean, and it's it's the luck of the draw. If you don't happen to live in one of those areas that is affected, then you you're That's good right. to go. Yeah. Um but you the, can be the smartest guy, you can be the richest guy. Right. And it doesn't matter. And it has been inspiring seeing people, just regular citizens, go in and, you know, I have a boat. Uh, I'm here to help people. That's what I'm here to do. I came here to do that. You know, I have a jet ski. I'm going to go around yeah. and go into houses and, yeah. and save people. Um, it's humanity really stepping up. Yeah, it's been really inspiring to watch those stories. In most cases, it's been inspiring, Brittany Page. Yeah. In others, not so much. In the case of my good buddy, Joel Osteen, who blocked me on Twitter a year or two ago. Good times. Uh, not so inspiring when he has a church that used to be a basketball arena for a National Basketball Association team. That can seat 16,000 people. And he doesn't open his doors. And televangelist and multi-millionaire Joel Osteen is facing a lot of criticism for not opening up his Houston megachurch, despite a desperate need for shelter. The church, an indoor arena which seats more than 16,000, announced on Facebook it was shut because it was inaccessible due to severe flooding. Well, after a backlash on social media, Osteen tweeted this. Victoria and I are praying for everyone affected by Hurricane Harvey. Please join us as we pray for the safety of our Texas friends and family. We tried contacting Osteen and his church, but received no response. In the past, though, Osteen has described his megachurch like this. When you came in this building today, you may not realize it, but you entered a guilt-free zone. You might as well leave it outside. This is a righteous place. But what about the people who need help? Well, again, here's a short clip from an old Osteen sermon. Bottom line, nobody owes you anything. God is keeping all the records. He has seen everything that's happened in your life. Boo-hoo. But we all make mistakes. If this decision by Osteen was a mistake, how would it fit in with God's plan? What you think is a failure. You blew it. Nothing good could come out of that. God has a way of making miracles out of mistakes. Well, maybe not a miracle, but possibly a change of heart. Osteen's church is opening Tuesday at noon to collect relief supplies and may be getting ready to offer shelter as well. Watch this space. There's also been video to combat the claim that they had, they had been, oh, severe flooding they were experiencing. 
Well, they, I believe they were. Their excuse was the surrounding areas had been flooded and the building was inaccessible. Except for the video that we saw of the two men who walked up to the church and were at the doors filming with their cell phones inside the church. The doors were closed, of course. I feel like you're yelling at me, and I am not defending him. I'm just telling you <laughs> what their excuse was. I do want to say uh, the friendly atheist who blogs on Pathios. Seth, a- Seth Andrews. Is that who runs Friendly Atheist? Oh, are you talking about uh, Hammett? I don't Meta, know. I didn't, I didn't think is. it was Seth Andrews. but um, The thinking atheist is the other guy, yeah, Seth Andrews. So the friendly atheist, whoever, he wrote a blog and defended Joel Austin and said, listen, they really? said that it's inaccessible due to flooding. And I'm sure if they uh, could help, they would because they have in the past. Okay. Like that's, that's great and everything. I appreciate the attempt at being even handed, but Joel Austin has given, is it Osteen or Austin? I, I call him Joel Austin. He has given other interviews where he has then changed the story kind of, right, and given new excuses. So it seems like if that story was correct in the beginning, that the building was inaccessible due to flooding, that would have remained the excuse. Unfortunately, it hasn't. Well, what they say, well, first of all, pictures have circulated of flooded areas, and they have a parking structure that is below ground level that I'm sure was flooded. And those are the pictures that has been released by the church which is of parking structure areas, not church areas where people would be set up. But here's an interview on Good Morning America this morning explaining away with all of his excuses. Uh, I'll warn you, we're going to start and stop this quite a bit as we work through it. And Pastor Joel Osteen is with us now. Pastor, good morning to you. Thank you for getting up early with us. We appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you all. Well, of course, by now you're familiar with the criticism that the church has faced. And I guess my question is to you, why did the church wait until yesterday to start taking in people? Well, our church, our church doors have always been open. In fact, we, we took people in right when the water started to recede, which was just a, a day or two after the big storm hit. All right, let's stop it there. We started to take people in as soon as the water went down. As soon as there's really no need for shelters because it's not, everyone's not flooded and inundated with water. As soon as the water started going down, then we took people in. When it's less than dire circumstances for them. Or when it's, let me put it, when it's not as dire. When waters are rising and they are at their peak, that is when people need the most help. But he waits until, ah, as soon as people maybe have other options, then we'll open our doors. I thought he said there that they started taking people right away, that no. they took some people right away. He said that our doors have always been open, right? but we started taking people in when the waters started to recede, huh. is what he said. But we work very closely with the city. Four miles down the road, the city established its biggest shelter with, you know, with room for thousands, with, with beds, with kitchen supplies, with everything they need, security. They didn't need us as a shelter right then. And we coordinate with them all the time. If we needed to be a shelter, we would have certainly been a shelter right when they, right when they first asked. But once they filled up, never dreaming we'd have this many displaced people, they asked us to become a shelter. And we said, hey, we'd love to be a shelter. That's what Lakewood is all about. But 
I think this notion that somehow we would turn people away or we weren't here for the city is is about as false as can be. So they were asked. I thought it, their doors were open from the beginning, he said. at the he, First, he, this is what he said so far. Our doors have always been open. We started taking people in when the water started to recede. One, those are two different things. And now he's saying it is, well, we weren't asked to be a shelter yet. As soon as we were asked to do our Christ-administered duty to take care of the needy, oh, then we did it when the city asked us to. Pastor Osteen, it, it sounds like you think uh, the criticism itself uh, is unfounded and, and just a bit silly. But, but you guys did put out a statement on Monday. And in that statement, you, you said in part, we are prepared to shelter people once the cities and county shelters reach capacity. I think a lot of folks probably read that or heard that and, and thought, why wouldn't the House of, of Worship open its doors immediately, initially, even perhaps before some of the other shelters? We're all about helping people. This is what the, the church is and our church is all about. So I think it's, I don't know if it's unfounded, but I think if people were here, they'd realize there were safety issues. This building had flooded before. And so we were just being precautious. But the main thing is the city didn't ask us to become a shelter then. And Pastor Osteen, do you sort of wish? Again, oh, well, we weren't asked to. Do, what authority do you answer to, Joel Osteen? Is it the almighty God, uh, Jesus, or is it the mayor of Houston? Are you coordinating with the word of God, your Bible, or are you coordinating with the mayor of Houston? Excuse after excuse. Hurricane Harvey... The storm began on Friday. So Friday, storm and flooding. Saturday, storm and flooding. Sunday, storm and flooding. Monday, storm and flooding. Tuesday, opened our doors to bring in some some materials to help people out. And then Tuesday night, they started letting people in. Well, it's even, there's this Mattress Mac who owns furniture stores in the Houston area. And he has opened his furniture stores as shelters for people that need a place to go. And I've heard somewhere between 400 and 800 people have taken shelter at his stores. No one came to him and asked him to do that. He just did that. And Joel Austin, it bothers me that they keep calling him Pastor Austin, just Joel. He... Is he runs a tax exempt, exempt organization That's right. for this specific purpose? Because the assumption is that churches do a lot of this work, right? A yeah. lot of these social services type work where they support people who need help. That's what this organization is supposed to do. And so he didn't need to be asked. That's what he should just be doing. Somebody on Twitter tweeted something hilarious, which is that uh, the Lakewood Church. It's not a shelter for humans. It's just a shelter for taxes to shield themselves against paying taxes to the U.S. government. It's a great point, though, that you make. This is chiefly why they don't pay taxes, because they're a charitable organization that is supposed to take care of people in distress, to act in a charitable manner as prescribed by Jesus himself. 
Joel Osteen lives in a 10.5 million, 17,000 square foot house with six bedrooms and six bathrooms and three elevators. He is worth, depending on where you look, between 40 and $60 million. And he can't open his church. And then when he does, it's only after he's consulted with what I assume to be a PR firm to how do we deal with this crisis we've created. She could kind of have a redo on the last few days. I mean, it has been a bit of a, a PR nightmare for you guys. What would you have done differently? Yeah, I don't, I'm sure we've done something differently, but, uh, you know, the fact is, I don't know that we would have opened or done it, opened any sooner because, again, there were safety issues. I think sometimes, you know, somehow social media can be very powerful and they can create this false narrative. But if you're sitting in another state and you're not here, I mean, my niece was stand, stranded right across the street from this building, nowhere to go. This, this building was one foot from flooding. If we didn't have our floodgates, it would have flooded. And so it's. Wait a minute. His niece was across the street from his own church that, by his own account, had its doors open. Their doors were always open, he said. Well, then why didn't she just walk across the street and go into the church if your doors were always open? It's easy to say, wow, there's that big building. They're not using it. But we don't have volunteers and we don't have staff that could get here. So... We're all about helping the city whenever we could. If they would ask us to become a shelter early on, we would have prepared for it all and been ready to help. But, hey, thank God we can do it now and help the city, you know, in this way. Hey, well, thank God that only after I've been excoriated by social media, thank God that I can do it now. Well, I like his Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Oh, a week later. Thank God we're doing it, though, huh? I like his story about his niece getting trapped because uh, I hope she's safe. And I'm sure that was a scary experience. Luckily, she has an aunt and an uncle who live in a $10.5 million mansion and have a lot of money and also have um, a stadium that is able to hold 16,000 people. Yeah. So he's, he's telling this story, but he's also telling a story of someone who has resources that can go somewhere and be helped just like he is. He doesn't have to worry about anything. He can fly away on his money. There are people who don't have insurance, who don't have savings, and their lives are being ruined by this right now. And the least he could do... And we're talking about the people who have survived. The least he could do as someone who's running a tax-exempt organization. And I realize that there are other reasons that churches are tax-exempt organizations. The separation of church and state, all that. But it also is because they are supposed to provide services to help people. Yes. And this would have been a perfect opportunity when the evacuations started to have to be prepared for this to happen. If some businessman can open his furniture stores, Joel Austin can open his 16,000 seat auditorium. Mattress Mac is the guy you're talking about. Yeah, for people to stay. It, it who, just Who gave his personal cell phone number out on national TV on CNN last night. And he was using his delivery trucks to go out and search for people. Again, you're telling me 
that Joel Osteen doesn't have the money and resources to do exactly what Mattress Mac is doing. He has far more resources. To use trucks and go out and search for people and find them and save them. Isn't that what we should expect of Joel Osteen? That's exactly what it is. It's the expectation from him. Surprised how ferocious the response could be on social media. I mean, I know you've been in the public eye a long time, so you're not a stranger to that dynamic. But were you surprised at, at how that reaction played out? You know, I didn't. I, I guess I, I would say yes, but I don't really pay much attention to it. I've never run one. I've never read one negative thing, and so I let you know the team tells me, "Hey, there's this big thing." But the main thing is, social media doesn't run our life. We run our ministry. We do what we're called to do. And hey, everybody that's making a difference is going to have critics. And if you're sitting somewhere not in this situation, I mean, think of the story if we'd have housed, you know, a whole bunch of uh, evacuees and the building flooded. We would look like, you know, that wouldn't have been a good story. So we try to use the best. Way Wisdom we can, and the main thing is we we've been here for sixty years. Didn't he just say something about the floodgates that they have preventing the flooding? Luckily, we have floodgates that prevented the flooding. Yeah, he claims that the the water was within a foot of overtaking their floodgates. Uh huh. Again, that's also in the lower levels during in the parking garage area. Yeah, I mean, listen, I if if it was the case that it was inaccessible due to flooding, then all this is a bummer. But it's not the case. Also, but there's I, video evidence that it's not the case. He's a liar. But I want to say that that even if it's the case, I feel like his attitude during this interview is more about defending his image and defending their actions. Absolutely. Than talking about what's actually happening to the human beings. That, again, he has the ability to help. I mean, you're seeing all these celebrities come out. Sandra Bullock just donated a million dollars to the American Red Cross. Celebrities all over are sending money. And you have him defending his image, defending the church's decision, rather than, you know what? Yeah, I'm donating to the Red Cross. I'm out here networking. I'm sending trucks out because I have all this money and I'm going to find people and I'm, you know, I'm doing this work. No, I'm not hearing any of that. The local NBA team is giving $10 million toward flood relief. $10 million. What's this church doing? They're waiting almost a goddamn week to help out at all. That's what they're doing. To help this city and be a blessing to others, and that's what we're going to continue to do long after the you know the media and the, the you know everything's died down. We'll be here five years from now helping these people. So we, we feel good about who we are and what we're doing. And, and Pastor, just in a word, I mean, what do you need? What what can people do to help? Well, you know, we need we need funds. There's the Red Cross and different areas you can, different avenues you can give to. You know, today we'll be taking in supplies, baby baby foods, medical supplies. So we become we're a distribution center. People are dropping off by the thousands, all kinds of supplies. We feed the different shelters around the city. The city's setting up a command post here as well. And so I think now we need prayer, we need support, and you know, any way you can any way you can make a difference. Pastor Joel Olsen, thank you for getting up early and taking a few minutes with us this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless. Do not send money to Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. Do not give another goddamn dime to Joel Osteen. Text, Text Harvey to 90999 and they'll tack on $10 to your cell phone bill and send $10 to the Red Cross. Do not 
If you want to, if you live in the Houston area and you want to drop off diapers or baby food or something like that, that is a tangible, do that. If you feel like that's necessary at Lakewood, but do not give this motherfucker money. You can also text UW flood to four, one, four, four, four. That will donate money to the United way of greater Houston. Uh, like Jesse said, you can donate to the Texas Diaper Bank. They have an address which you can mail diapers to. Um, there's many organizations you can donate to. I would recommend going to Where to Donate to Harvey Victims and How to Avoid Scams. It's an article in the New York Times that we'll post to the Twitter and Facebook. And we'll put it in the show notes, too. Um, donate to those organizations rather than Joel Osteen, who lives in a $10.5 million mansion. 17,000 square foot, everybody. Good times. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think that needed to be done. We, I needed to talk about, even for my own catharsis, I needed to address this whole Joel Osteen thing because he's a charlatan. He is a fraud. He, 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 he traffics in the prosperity gospel. You know, you know how many multimillionaires and... There were among the disciples of Jesus. All of them. Yeah, all of them. Every <laughs> single one lived in a giant mansion. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Come on. It. I wasn't very upset until I read about Mattress Mac, who is this businessman. And yes, he's very successful. He has, he has a lot of money. But he. He said last night, profits be damned. Yeah, he, and he, has, he has a history of doing this, actually, um, doing these types of things. I mean, he's sending out his own delivery trucks to go find people. And he's, he said it was dangerous, That's in right. Fact. He said the city, probably it's probably not a good idea Because they to were do doing it. it at night. Yeah, but you got to do what you got to do. I mean, I have goosebumps talking about this. Yeah. And then you have Joel Osteen, who has all of the resources, because he has so much money, that he can do whatever he wants. And he's not doing the right thing. You know, you have people that have these resources that are stepping up. And he, what does he talk about every Sunday? You know? Yeah. Where is he? And yeah. I'm seeing all these people defend him. Oh, well, it would have took a lot of planning and coordinating. Okay, he has all of the resources yeah. to do that. What are you saying? It, no, it's just him and his wife and this little church. No. It's a basketball arena that holds 16,000 plus people. They spent $102 million, a tenth of a billion dollars, renovating when they bought the building. It's not this little operation. Anyway, um, we're skipping the Patreon mid-rolls because you should be donating to Harvey Flood Relief. Again, check the show notes. Check the post on the website. There will be links there. The best place to go to find out the different sources um, and avenues to donate. Thanks, you guys. Stalemocracy. Facing down pessimistic politics with realistic optimism. So sticking with Harvey News, Donald Trump made an appearance, not in Houston, but in Corpus Christi. And look, any other president 
said any one of these isolate these things isolated, eh, it wouldn't be that big a deal. But because it's Donald Trump, it really gives us a a, a, a look peering into his brain, knowing what's important. First, all of his tweets leading up to and during the storm, whether it be, you know, go buy Sheriff Clark's book or Missouri, I won so great in Missouri. He just, he lacks empathy. I, I think it's, he's devoid of empathy. Again, no clinician here, but eh, I know people. You could see very clear what's important to him. This is what he said about his FEMA director, because fame is something that's important to him. Uh, we have had a, a tremendous group of folks. Our acting director, Elaine, thank you very much for the job you've done. And a man who's really become very famous on television over the last couple of days, Mr. Long. We appreciate it very much. You have been just outstanding. And so you hear that, and you hear the uncomfortable laughter of the, of the group with whom he's speaking. Was it uncomfortable laughter? I or, think it was. Or was that someone trying to support what he was saying? Maybe, but when you watch him, he's not joking. There's no. no joke coming from Donald Trump. And I perceive that laughter as uncomfortable. Or maybe trying to, oh, like, oh, he's making a joke. He wasn't making a joke. That's serious to him. Oh, you become very famous because you've been on TV talking about the numbers of people who are dying over the course of this storm, this 500-year weather event. Here he is talking to Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, about how, well, let's wait to congratulate each other on what great jobs we've done. So, uh, Governor, again, thank you very much. And we won't say congratulations. We don't want to do that. We don't want to congratulate. We'll congratulate each other when it's all finished. But uh, you have been... This wasn't even the worst of it. I mean, it just keeps getting worse. Yeah. He... He didn't even go near the disaster area, but he wanted to make it look like he was doing something. And I think that he thinks if it appears as though he's having some meaningful role, then that's enough. And I'm sure that's enough for some people. Some people are going to say, oh, look at what he's doing. Yes, he was there and it's great. He didn't do anything. He didn't meet with people who have had their lives ruined by this. He flew to areas in the general vicinity, but not near the disaster area, and talked about people being famous, congratulations, oh, not yet, and the crowd turnout. We love you. You are special. We're here to take care. It's going well. And I want to thank you for coming out. We're going to get you back and operating immediately. Thank you, everybody. What a crowd. What a turnout. I want to thank our governor. Your governor has done a fantastic job. Governor Abbott, thank you very much. So we just want to thank your governor, Senator Cruz, Senator Cornyn, uh, everybody, Dan. We want to thank the whole group. This has been a, a total cooperative effort. Again, we will see you soon. I will tell you, this is historic. It's epic what happened. But you know what? It happened in Texas, and Texas can handle anything. Thank you all, folks. Thank you. 
So great crowd, great turnout. Hey, everybody, thanks for turning out to come and see me. It's a good time. That's where his head is. The other thing that, I, that I'm kind of piecing together here is his constant talk about epic, historic, because he's going to use this, mark my words, once everything comes together and the relief effort is successful. And down the road, in a year or so, when things are in some semblance of normal, he's going to say, look at what I did. Look at how I handled it. I was so presidential. It was so great in the face of this epic, historic tragedy. Those are words he's going to continue to use relative to how he dealt with a tragedy and natural disaster the likes of which the world has never seen. That's the kind of narrative he's going to paint. Because this is all about Donald Trump. This is about him and how he's helping everyone when he's really not doing much. We'll congratulate each other on what, how we did our jobs later. Yeah, Donald Trump tweeted, after witnessing firsthand the horror and devastation caused by Hurricane Harvey, my heart goes out even more so to the great people of Texas. So he's trying to say, based on this trip that he made, that he was in the heart of it, that he, he saw firsthand what had happened. Uh, this is not the case. And in fact, uh, someone retweeted this who is from a France press agency, a White House correspondent, and he said, I traveled with the president yesterday. Personally, I would not claim to have seen Harvey's horror and devastation firsthand. Yeah. And there's reports coming out of the White House that Trump has been kind of obsessed with this whole event. And I don't think it's obsessed in terms of, oh my God, what's happening to people, but oh my God, how can I get in on this? Optics wise. Yeah. And I mean, that's really unfortunate. Even look, we talked about last episode, how he waited until the, the, the storm landed to make the announcement that Gorka was out and that he had pardoned Joe Arpaio. And when asked about it, he said, oh, I figured the ratings would be so great for the hurricane that more people would know about that news. That's why we waited. Are you fucking kidding me? You lying piece of shit. So according to this Politico article, Trump, aide said, was determined to make a visit early. He had even pushed to come before Tuesday, one advisor said, wanting to be on the ground as quickly as possible. From Washington, he began giving administration officials assignments and told his entire cabinet, quote, that everyone is focused on this. One senior administration official said advisors saw the storm as a way for Trump to show decisive leadership. While the famed germaphobe has never shown a streak of being the consoler in chief, these people said the hurricane gives his government a chance to show competency and him as the chief executive of the response. Yeah. So was that competency flying in and talking about the crowd size and how many people turned out to see you uh, talking about how the FEMA director is going to be famous with all the coverage that's going on? Uh, I mean, no, no. That's not the appropriate response. He's not getting it done. Again, people are dying. People are losing everything they have. They're going to be displaced for who knows how long. And these are his priorities. And we shouldn't be surprised because this is who he is. Yeah. It's sick. 
It really is. All right, well, let's move on to some Russia news that I've been waiting to talk about, but all of this is kind of pushed to where we are today. Breaking news, a CNN exclusive. A revealing email from a top aide to President Trump under new scrutiny tonight by congressional investigators. The email detailed an effort to arrange a meeting between top Trump officials and Russian President Vladimir Putin during the campaign. Multiple sources say that the email was sent from Rick Dearborn, who is now Trump's deputy chief of staff. CNN has learned that the email was sent around the time of the June 2016 Trump Tower meeting between Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and then campaign chairman Paul Manafort, and Russians offering damaging information on Hillary Clinton. Dearborn was a top campaign aide at the time. Manu Raju and our team broke this story, and he is with us out front tonight. So, Manu, what details are you learning about this email? Yeah, that's right, Jim. Congressional investigators have unearthed this email from this top Trump aide that references previously unreported effort to arrange a meeting last year between Trump officials and Vladimir Putin. Now, this is according to sources with direct knowledge of the matter. Now, this, the aide, Rick Dearborn, the president's deputy chief of staff and former chief of staff to Jeff Sessions as a senator, sent this brief email to campaign officials last year relaying information about an individual who was seeking to connect top Trump officials with Putin. Now, the person in this email was only identified as being from, quote, WV, which one source told me was a reference to West Virginia. Now, it's unclear who this West Virginia individual is, what he or she may have been seeking, and whether Dearborn even acted on this request. One source said that it is believed that this West Virginia individual had political connections in that state. Now, that same source told me that Dearborn in the email did appear to be skeptical of the requested meeting, which that email came out in June of 2016. Now, as I mentioned, Dearborn, the former chief of staff of Jeff Sessions, as well as the top policy in the, in the campaign and investigators, I'm told, have questions about whether he played any role in arranging two meetings that occurred last year between the Russian ambassador, ambassador at the time, Sergei Kislyak, and Sessions. Dearborn was also in involved in helping arrange an, a 2016 event at the Mayflower Hotel where Trump delivered a major foreign policy address and where there was a, a, may have been any uh, an encounter between Sessions and Kislyak. Questions about that as well. Now, Dearborn, Jim, did not respond to multiple inquiries seeking comment. Uh, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders declined to comment, but she would not respond to a number of emails that I had about the basics of exactly what this email was about. She said to me, we're not going to comment on potentially leaked documents. Yeah, this email among some 20,000 pages of documents produced to congressional investigators. Now, now we know the timing of this uh, could be key because it was sent around June 2016, the same time roughly as Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with a Russian lawyer in Trump Tower here in New York. Uh, have you found any connection between the two? We don't know if there's any connection between the two yet. We really don't have many details other than the fact that this email does now exist and something that investigators want to learn more about and want to question Dearborn about as well. Now, intelligence experts say this kind of request made by this unidentified West Virginian really does fit a pattern of Russians trying to gather human intelligence and seek unwilling and sometimes unwitting partners as part of their covert operations. But a lot of questions unanswered, but it appears to fit a pattern of Russians trying to work with the Trump campaign. We'll see if this was something that they another example of that or whether the campaign didn't really do anything with it. We still don't know those questions just yet, Jim. And now we know that this West Virginia reference is about a contractor in West Virginia. They know who he is. 
Nothing to see here, folks. Just more drip, drip, drip into the ever-overflowing pool of Russia connections to Donald Trump and the Trump campaign. There have been updates relative to Donald Trump Jr. After months of negotiating, they finally landed on Donald Trump Jr. meeting with Congress. Donald Trump Jr. was invited to sit down in a public session before this Judiciary Committee on the Senate side in July. Now, he cut a deal to avoid that public appearance. They went behind the scenes. They had weeks of negotiations. And now Donald Trump Jr. has agreed to a private closed-door meeting with Senate Judiciary Committee staff and senators who are also invited. They can come down and they can meet with uh, Don Jr. in this transcribed interview that will, they will be discussing that Trump Tower meeting from June of 2016, in which Trump Jr., of course, as he said, was promised dirt from the Russians on the Clinton campaign. Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort also attended that meeting. This will be the first time that he does sit down with anyone from Capitol Hill. He had said publicly in the aftermath of the revelations, Don Jr. said publicly he'd be willing to testify under oath before Congress, but once he was invited by this committee to talk in public, instead he wanted to go behind the scenes, behind closed doors. It's uncertain, Brooke, if he will, in fact, come public, uh, testify in a public session. Other committees like the House and Senate Intelligence Committee also want to talk to Donald Trump Jr., but we know now that he has agreed to a date for this closed-door session with the Senate Judiciary Committee. They are not disclosing the date as of yet, but I was told by the top Democrat and Republican on that committee, uh, they told me previously they expected him to come as soon as September, so we could be seeing him on Capitol Hill in just a matter of days here, Brooke. Why is this private? These elections were our elections. We the people. We deserve to know what went on. If this doesn't deal with classified information national security-related information, then there is no reason this should be behind closed doors. And at the very least, these transcripts should be released to the public so we could peruse them and see what the fuck his answers are. Why did he agree to a meeting with excitement at the prospect of receiving information from the Russian government derogatory information about Hillary Clinton. Eventually, we're going to find out. But too many concessions are being made to Donald Trump Jr. Well, and now the the special counselor, Robert Mueller, is wondering what Trump's role was in constructing that response. Mm -hmm. And they're becoming more interested in... You mean the response that Donald Trump crafted for Trump Jr., the excuse of uh, why he had the meeting, what the reason for the meeting was when they said it was about adoption. Right. Yeah. And whether or not he sought to conceal what the true purpose behind the meeting actually was. Because remember, he's acting like, oh, it was just about this. And But wait a minute. So you didn't read the emails or that seems... The, the email that said... Like super secret Russia, 
Yeah. The subject of the email I, said that. I'm sure that Donald Trump Jr. came in the room and said, hey, um, I need you to help me respond to this email. The thing is, you can't read any of the emails and you can't see what the subject of the email is. So let's try to figure this out. OK. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> and that's not even the latest. The latest is about Donald Trump signing a letter of intent to build a Trump Tower style development in Moscow. Russia. Now to CNN's Manu Raju. Tell us what you're learning about these emails that are now under multiple investigations, Manu. Hey, Brianna, we are learning now that the president on three separate occasions discussed this hotel and condominium project in Moscow with his attorney, Michael Cohen. Now, that is according to a report in Bloomberg. And a separate Washington Post report now says that in January 2016, Cohen wrote an email to one of Vladimir Putin's most trusted aides, Dmitry Peskov, to note that the talks between the two over the project have stalled. And this would mark the highest level discussion between a Kremlin official and a Trump official that we know of today. Now, the man who is trying to broker this Moscow deal is a man by the name of Felix Sater, a Russian-American businessman and associate of the president. Now, Sater says in a 2015 email obtained by the New York Times that, quote, our boy can become president of the USA and we can engineer it, saying he would get the Putin's team's buy-in for the project. Now, Brianna Cohen is now downplaying the matter in a statement to CNN, saying today that in late January 2016, I abandoned the Moscow proposal because I lost confidence that the prospective licensee would bring the proposal to fruition. It was a building proposal that did not succeed and nothing more. Cohen also said subsequently to CNN that he sent an email to that Putin aide Peskov regarding the Moscow project, saying it was an email that went unanswered and nothing else. And he also told congressional investigators that that Sater actually made that recommendation to reach out to that Putin aide. But, Brianna, all these developments undercut the president's regular claims that there were no business dealings whatsoever with Russia. Yeah, they certainly do. And, Manu, this isn't the only email that's under review that shows an attempt to connect the Trump campaign with Russian officials, right? Yeah, that's right, Brianna. Last week, CNN reported about an email from a top Trump aide, Rick Dearborn, turned over to the Hill that showed him relaying a message from an individual from West Virginia who wanted to set up a meeting with the Trump campaign and Vladimir Putin. Now, CNN has learned that the West Virginia man is a 54-year-old contractor named Rick Clay, who also informed GOP Senator Shelley Moore Capito he wanted to talk to the campaign about Russian contacts. Now, Clay told me that he was simply trying to relay his own message from a friend who works with Christian organizations who had been in contact with Russians who wanted to discuss, quote, shared Christian values with the campaign. Now, Dearborn, we were told, rejected the request and said it should go through the State Department. But intelligence officials say, Brianna, this is a growing practice of Russian intelligence to try to build alliances with conservative groups to try to penetrate the political system. Now, that's uncertain if that's what happened here, but that's something that investigators will have to look into further, Brianna. All right, Manu Raju, thank you so much. We have our eyes. So there's a lot of troubling shit there that we're unpacking. We, meaning the United States, the investigation. This Felix Sater guy is bad news for Donald Trump. And this email between him and Michael Cohen, remember the who, who's saying that? To Brianna Keeler, uh, all the polls, everyone, that guy. There, the email was very troubling. They didn't read even the most salacious part, I believe, that was released by the New York Times. 
It's very troubling. I get to read the salacious part? Yeah. Well, just read read the whole section that the New York Times released. Michael, I arranged for Ivanka to sit in Putin's private chair at his desk and office in the Kremlin. I will get Putin on this program and we will get Donald elected. We both know no one else knows how to pull this off without stupidity or greed getting in the way. I know how to play it and we will get this done. Buddy, our boy can become president of the USA and we can engineer it. I will get all of Putin's team to buy in on this. I will. This is not just some random acquaintance of Donald Trump. And this email isn't to just some random in the Trump organization. This is Felix Sater and Michael Cohen emailing back and forth about engineering with Russia the election of Donald Trump to the presidency. And Felix Sater is a Russian-born American real estate developer from the New York City area. So he obviously was connected to Donald Trump because that's what Donald Trump is known for. So connected that he actually took Eric Trump on an expedition looking for business opportunities in Russia a few years ago. He has deep connections to Donald Trump. He was carrying Trump Organization business cards that said senior advisor as his job title. Here's an interview from 2013 with Donald Trump. The BBC sat down with Donald Trump to ask about his relationship with Felix Sater. And when they really started asking some questions about his relationship to, his connection to Sater, Donald Trump gets up and fucking pieces out of the interview quite unceremoniously. Meet Felix Sater, a Russian-American gangster. Before becoming a senior advisor to Donald Trump in New York, he'd been to prison for stabbing a man in the face. He'd also been convicted for his part in a $40 million mafia scam on Wall Street. Sater escorted Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka around Moscow in 2006. So why would Trump want him as a partner? Back in 2013, I asked Trump about a property deal bearing the Trump name that he did with Felix Sater's company, Bayrock. Why didn't you go to Felix Sater and say, you're connected with the mafia? You're fired. Well, first of all, we were not the developer there. That was a licensing deal. Much but your about name's Felix. on it, Mr. Trump. Excuse me, but I don't know. You're telling me things that I don't even know about. I mean, you're telling me about Felix Sater. I know who he is. Uh, but, but for a year, you stayed in bed with Felix Sater, and he was connected with the mafia. Again, John, maybe you're thick, but when you have a signed contract, you can't, in this country, just break it. And by the way, John, I hate to do this, but I do have that big group of people waiting, so I have to Okay, leave. now hold on. One last question, please, sir. I have to leave. Um, Thank you. Felix Sater told us that he is not now, nor has he ever been connected with the mob. But having a man like Sater in Trump Tower shows poor judgment. Worse, these kind of associations leave him vulnerable to being compromised. Vulnerable to being compromised. And he's talking about connections to the mafia. That was in 2013. That's before and what we've been talking about and what investigators are talking about and what the crux of this entire thing is, is Donald Trump being able to be compromised by the Russian government. That's why there was all the hubbub about the dossier 
many parts of which are unconfirmed and unsubstantiated, is the ability of the Russian government to compromise the now president of the United States. This is a running theme for, for Donald Trump for many years. Yeah. I I love I love the part of the interview where well this is just exactly how things continue to go. He doesn't know about anything. Then he acts like a dick to the person that's interviewing uh, him. Maybe you're thick. And actually insults them to their face. And then be right back, gotta go. Gets right. up and leaves. Because well, I know who he is. He's kind of distancing language there. Yeah, because things start getting a little too too heated. Well, too much he, pressure. Yeah, because unless he's going to come right out and lie, he has to use that, that those kind of tactics. Felix Sater, that name is going to be a very important puzzle piece to all of this. You're going to be hearing it a lot more in the coming coming weeks. Well, and I was watching an interview with Kellyanne Conway and Brett Baer on Fox News, and he asked her about the Russia investigation, and I think his question was, when do you think it will end? Which was a weird question. But she said, you know, I don't know. Uh, we've been waiting for it to end. They're not finding anything. Nothing's coming of this. And obviously this is... They're not finding anything. This is a bombshell New York Times report. And when the media reports things like this, you have to wonder, what do the actual investigators know? And they're continuing the investigation for a reason. It's not as though they're just going to keep investigating something because it's pointless. They're finding stuff. Yeah. Yeah. If it's no longer rewarding, well, then why would they be wasting their time? That's exactly right. I mean, they are the government, so (laughs) maybe. Maybe they're just collecting a paycheck. Yeah, we'll see. Brittany doesn't have confidence. In Robert Mueller <laughs> and the special prosecutor's office. I'm just trying to be fair and balanced. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's the asshole of today. So you, rem- you remember that meme that was going around? Oh, I'm supposed to say who it is. It's Steve King. Steve King from Iowa. Yeah. You know that meme? That, that... meme. Oh, oh, do I remember that meme I'm that was going I'm getting ready around? to tell you. Jesus, the, the what a way to open. The meme that was going around where you had to pick three fictional characters that represented who you are. Oh, yeah. I was uh, Cornelius, the guy from the, the claymation, mm-hmm. stop, anim- stop motion animation. Yes. And a couple others. Jack Donaghy and somebody else. Yeah, yeah. I I chose Stanley from The Office, even though technically I'm Stangela. And yeah, you're you're a, you're an amalgam of yeah. Stanley and Angela from The Office. Stangela and Liz Lemon, and then I also chose Al Swearengen from Deadwood. Yeah, and some people were a little alarmed by this. Wait a minute, Al Swearengen, terrible human being. Well, listen, when I watched this video of Steve King, I felt the Al Swearengen anger come out yeah this clip that you're about to listen to this is basically a trigger warning that i'm giving to everyone (laughs) um it's likely gonna make you very angry so here we go are you comfortable congressman with providing 1.6 billion dollars of taxpayer money not from mexico to build that wall Absolutely, yes, and more. And I'd throw another $5 billion on the pile, and I would find a half of a billion dollars of that right out of Planned Parenthood's budget. And the rest of it could come out of food stamps and the entitlements that are being spread out for people that haven't worked in three generations. We've got to put America back to work. This administration will do it. And we've got to, let, we've got to free them up so that they can and support the right agenda for this country. You want to take food 
from people who are the, the people who are on the lowest rung in terms of the nation's safety net and their children in terms of food stamps, you're happy to take, you're willing to take money from them to build the 1.6 or to give the 1.6 billion for the border wall. For a couple of reasons. One of them would be that, you know, we will create the kind of security that would bring about 10 million new jobs in America just by enforcing immigration law. Second thing is, I wouldn't impose anything any more strict on anybody in America than what Michelle Obama did with her school lunch program. And so I would just say, let's limit it to that. Anybody that wants to have food stamps up to the school lunch program, that's, that's fine. And, uh, but we have seen this go from 19 million people on, on now SNAP program mm -hmm. up to 47 million people on the SNAP program. And, and you don't was, think all of them need it? Oh, I'm sure that all of them didn't need it. And so we need to set this down and, and ratchet it back down again. We built the program because to solve the problem of malnutrition in America. Mm -hmm. And now we have a problem of obesity. And when you match up the EBT card with the, what the scales say on some other folks, I think it's worth looking at. Michelle Obama looked at it. Republicans should be able to look at it, too. <laughs> okay. So this dick is just unbelievable. He is. Um, so SNAP, what he's talking about, is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Food stamps. And I don't even know where to start. I want to go from the, the, the back end to the front. So he talked about obesity. So now he's saying that food stamps has caused obesity. Is that what he's he's trying to make a Yeah, oh yeah. A causation well, he's a saying causal it, link between this? It was because of malnutrition that we began the program. And now people are fat. So because of food stamps, they're eating too much. It's not about what they're eating. It's about eating too much. That's what he's saying. Yeah, so it's, it's too many vegetables and good types of food. It has nothing to do with buying shitty food and not knowing about nutrition or being able to buy, you know, cheap, cheap food that you get end up addicted to like McDonald's and shit. And then he invokes Michelle Obama as though Michelle Obama would support what he's saying. Now, Michelle Obama's initiative, the Let's Move initiative, was about making kids healthier, right? Yeah. But it had nothing to do with some weird argument about food stamps and obesity. So let's just talk about... It was about what I just talked about, eating healthier. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about who's on SNAP, the program that he specifically mentioned that he takes issue with. 44% of SNAP recipients are children. Children. Yeah, almost half. Yes, almost half are children, okay? Under age 18. Two-thirds of SNAP benefits go to families with children, okay? So even if we're not talking about children specifically, most of the SNAP benefits go to families that have children. So I understand that for people like Steve King, it's really difficult to have compassion for adults. At least have compassion for children that yeah. are, are born into situations. They have no control over the type of family that they are born into, they are born into a low-income family where they don't have the ability to have food. And this program provides them with food. And he so callously... He wants to pay for the wall, the unnecessary border wall between the United States and Mexico on the backs of these children. So callously in his tone and facial expression doesn't care. 
And when Alison Camerata, by the way, I love her tone because it's like perfectly condescending without being overt. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's just beautiful. He doesn't care. And she brought up this point. Oh, so you think that uh, th- these people don't actually need it. Three generations. That's 60 years. Okay, so as though people... All right, come over here, Bobby. I'm going to show you how to fill out the food stamp form. I remember the day that my dad taught me how to fill it out. This is the way of life. This is how we survive. What are you talking about? I would love him to produce some sort of evidence of this. Where is that happening? Who? Who? Where? There's no evidence. He's a white supremacist. This is the man who on MSNBC during the Republican National Convention said I would like to show have somebody show me any evidence of any group that's done more for civilization than white people. Th- that is what he said. It, he didn't use coded language. That's what he said. SNAP helps families with nearly 20 million children afford an adequate diet. That's one in four children in the United States. What happens to those kids? when Steve King gets his way, which will never happen, but that's what he wants. What what would he have happen to those 20 million children? They'll be hungry, but at least he'll have a wall. A look, oh, my stomach's grumbling, but goddamn, at least we have a wall that is unnecessary because of negative immigration. We have negative net. It's It's less than net zero. Also, this isn't just about feeding kids. Research shows that the SNAP program actually helps children in other areas. It can lead to gains in reading and math skills among elementary school children, especially young girls, and it can increase their chances of graduating from high school. So this isn't just about a temporary fix of giving someone a meal, even though that is so important, and I don't know why anyone would want to take that away from a child. This can also lead to positive life outcomes and isn't that what we want we want to support someone who is born into a situation of which they did not control and they're they're they don't have the resources they they don't have a hand up and we need to give them that hand up so that they can go on and break the cycle and contribute to society in the way that steve king would have everyone contribute to society yeah this is the program that helps someone do that anyway asshole of today Mm mm-hmm And like many of our assholes of today, he could be asshole of every day. Yes. All right. We love you guys. We appreciate you. Thank you for joining us for this 333rd episode of I Doubt It with Dollamore. Listen, we would love for you to help support the show, help produce the show. Go to dollamore.com on the left-hand side of the page. Support the show. Or you can just go to dollamore.com slash Patreon, dollamore.com slash PayPal. Or if you're in the mood to buy a mug or a t-shirt, dollamore.info. We love you guys. We appreciate you. This is a hashtag third episode week. So we will be back on Friday afternoon. We love you guys. We appreciate you. Thank you. Until next time, for Brittany Page, I am Jesse Dollamore, and this is Ben. I doubt it. Fucking see ya if you're a dick. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.